Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and so there is something you'd fight for after all. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and the when of Doctor Who, a television programme about exploring the universe and blowing up the bad guys if necessary. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Zor from your Blore, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series, one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an instalment in which the show's off-sighted predilection for pacifism is punched in the face at birth as a group of peaceful farmers is encouraged to take up arms against a sea of plungers. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, the expedition, or give peace a chance until you drop something and then peace can get stuffed. First broadcast on the 18th of January 1964 at a quarter past five in the evening. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with John Lee as Alidon and Philip Bond as Ganatus. It was written by Terry Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Christopher Barry. It was watched by 9.9 million people, and the audience appreciation was 63. city in order to retrieve the fluid link, but the Thals are determined that they will not fight the Daleks in order to assist our heroes. Ian tests this hypothesis by pretending to take Dione in exchange for their lost piece of equipment, and in response, Aladdin thumps him. The Daleks notice that the strangers and the Thals have joined forces, but having duplicated the radiation drugs, they discover that they have a lethal effect on them. The Thals and the Travellers work out a two-pronged assault on the Dalek city. Ian and Barbara's party discover that the Lake of Mutations between them and the Daleks has a deadly reputation for a reason. And one of their team won't make it out of there alive. September 1963. Pre-production has begun on the serial. One of the early problems identified is at the beginning of this, the fifth episode, The Expedition, which is deemed too conversational. Director Richard Martin, originally assigned to helm the instalment until the knock-on effect of re-recording episode one means that the schedule is now off-kilter, is keen to show a lot more of the creature in the swamp than the script suggests but Verity Lambert, the producer, is inclined to leave most of it to the imagination. This will be more cost-effective too. 11th of October. Christopher Barry's notes, specific to the latest draft of the expedition, are that a speech on page 3 needs rewriting and another speech on the same page is untrue. Page 4, he feels, has Ian out of character with the scene, with the wrong attitude. He also thinks the scene insufficiently dramatic. On pages 8 and 9, Barbara displays an ignorance of hydroponics, which, Barry reasons, she would actually know about. 29th of October. Gerald Curtis, cast as the Thal Zor, is contacted by the production team with a map and instructions of how to get to the television studios at Ealing Green for filming at the end of this week, Friday the 1st of November. If you are feeling lazy, he is told, the 65 bus stops outside both the Tube station, Ealing Broadway, and the studios, with a fare of three pence. 31st of October. Richard Martin, initially down to direct this episode, sends David Whittaker and Verity Lambert three pages of notes about his thoughts on the current draft of the expedition. Please note that he is commenting on a draft that we no longer have. Page two, he feels resumes overwritten and suggests some cuts. He also has a slight problem with continuity. In the previous episode, the space travellers were preparing to get the hell out of it. 
so why should they expect or get such cooperation in return? He points out that the control room of the Daleks becomes the objective of the raiding party, but that this is also the council chamber. He suggests, using H.G. Wells's idea from War of the Worlds, that a common human virus kills the Daleks. Unless it is obvious that these people are dying off before our visitors arrive. He also asks that, can they please not have doctors, but existence-preserving rooms or personnel? Whilst some of his ideas may seem a bit far out, some of them actually hit the mark, for it is he, Richard Martin, in this memo, who suggests as an alternative to the two ideas just outlined, that it is the anti-radiation drug itself that kills the Daleks. He also suggests that the Dalek dialogue be phrased in the zombie-like impersonal manner. He also provides a scene of dialogue between Barbara and Kurt, but adds, or whoever he's called, indicating that there is already doubt about the Thal names. Kurt will later become Ganatus. This dialogue shows Kurt being evasive about revealing how the Daleks get their water because of his fear about the lake behind the city. In place of a scene involving leeches, which is clearly eventually cut, but positioned differently in the episode, Martin suggests a shot in which Kurt kills a snake to save Barbara as an alternative. He also displays little faith in the design department because of his expectation about the establishing shot of the jungle set that I doubt if the full shot of the amended set is going to look any bloody good. 1st of November. Filming takes place for this episode at Ealing Studios. There are just two shots planned. The first is a high shot with Gerald Curtis as Zor lying next to the lake, with the whirlpool effect fed into the picture. He is to be leaning on his elbow, sorting the water bags, when he hears a splash, turns and sees the whirlpool, edges away and turns back quickly before hiding his head in terror. To save making cuts each time this short sequence is done, Curtis repeats the action five times to make sure that they have it, creating a grand total of 1 minute and 42 seconds, which is all that is needed, and which will eventually be cut down to just one of these attempts and amount to less than five seconds, and it will also dispense with the head-hiding and any of that business. The next shot is planned for a few moments earlier, to establish Zor by the lake. It is a high shot again. He walks into shot, looks at the pool, and prepares the water bags. This is also presumably done a few times, as again, only one take is needed, but it totals one minute and 31 seconds. By the time the episode comes to be performed in the studio and assembled, though, this establishing shot is surplus to requirements and is not used. So Curtis's entire trip donning the costume, getting into makeup, rehearsing and shooting today actually results in just four seconds of screen time. 4th of November. A photo shoot of the Dalek prop is arranged in order that the resultant image be blown up to create full-sized cardboard cutouts in order to swell the ranks of the Daleks for the story from the expedition onwards. 13th of November. Having filmed his death scene as Zor, Gerald Curtis is now going to have to get used to his character being called Elian. In fact, all of the other Thal names have also been changed, and the new version of the expedition and the scripts for the next two episodes have a covering note explaining this when they are circulated. 25th of November. A revised costing for the whole serial is sent out to design costing from Christopher Barry, stating that for the expedition, special effects budgeting originally estimated at £60, should now be just £10. The next episode has a similar figure, but the final episode is costed at £50. A trifle thriftier than the £373 spent on effects for episode 1, and the £1,000, which, to be fair, included the Dalek machines, on episode 2. 5th of December, with Michael Summerton indicating that he won't be staying beyond the recording of the ambush, a new Dalek operator is needed. Christopher Barry books Peter Murphy, a.k.a. Murphy Grumbar, as an additional Dalek operator through his agent Adele Lorraine of Associated Plays and Players for the expedition 
to the end of the serial. Another Dalek, Kevin Manser, is already booked for the expedition, although on its recording date he was originally to have been working on the following episode, of course, and he is now booked for episode 6, again, and for episode 7. Barry also requests that the house engineer at Lime Grove arrange for an area of 200 square feet to be filled with water to a level of 3 inches in Studio 3 at 8.30am on the day of recording, which will be Friday 20th of December. He also requests a small two-way pump in order to produce a continuous trickling effect. This can be seen in the first shot of the jungle area, with water dripping down into the smoky pool in what is, in a very small space, an effective piece of scenery depicting the swamp and all its bubbling, smoky puddles and streams. From the graphics department, Barry requests the silk thal map of the city and a 12 by 9 photo caption slide of a mountainside with pipes running down. This will be used for the inlay shot when Ian, Ganatus and Elian observe the water pipes from the jungle clearing. Barry also requests the episode's title caption, next episode slide and closing credits from graphics today. 9th of December. When requesting costume and makeup for the cast, which are pretty much what they were all sporting in episode 4, Barry also requests that Alan Wheatley's cloak from last time is supplied again in order that it be used by an extra. Barry also drops Brian Hodgson of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which provides the special sounds, as usual, a line. He wants puff plops for the clicks when each new still is shown in the scene in the Dalek control room when the aliens go through the pictures of the travellers. He wants buzzing and clicking noises for the laser scope, and he wants nasty electronic shrieks and groans and watery roars, one quite loud track and other quieter ones and other odd noises for the jungle scenes. He also turns his attention to the more musical end of the soundscape by writing to composer Tristram Carey, enclosing the script and requesting the eight musical cues he thinks the story will need. The first cue, during the confrontation with Aladdin, requires 35 seconds of swamp, pessimistic music, segue 35 seconds, optimistic music, segue 60 seconds to the end of the scene after Ian has been struck down. For the scene of the Dalek's death by radiation drug, he asks for uh, two passes, one for here and one for later on, of a Dalek going berserk, say 15 seconds for scene four, to be continued throughout scene five. Other cues include more swamp menace, quite a lot more actually, antenna revolving and a background full of primeval life over which Radiophonic can put electronic shrieks and groans, etc. He apologises if his instructions are vague and hints that the script will probably change, especially the sections in the swamp. 10th of December. Meg Hornby, Christopher Barry's secretary, contacts Studios Booking to request dressing rooms for the cast of the expedition in ten days' time. Hartnell needs the best possible room available, as do the other three regulars, and all regulars and guests get a single room bar the Dalek operators and non-speaking Thals. New Dalek Peter Murphy is put in with Thals Chris Browning and Kevin Glenny, whilst the other three Daleks share. 11th of December 1963. Peter Hawkins and David Graham pre-record some of the Daleks' voices between 5pm and 7.30pm at Lime Grove Studio R. Graham's work on the episode is done, but Hawkins is to join the team for recording on the 20th. 12th of December. Christopher Barry requests an experienced inlay operator for the complicated inlay work required for recording the expedition. New boy Peter Murphy, drafted in after the departure of Michael Summerton, who is now gone, is sent the script for the expedition and the ordeal. Meg Hornby tells him that We hope you will enjoy this somewhat unusual job, where you will be asked to become an extremely skilled operator of one of these fairly complex machines, as you will see that you have to fight in them. 14th of December. Rather late in the day, seeing as he has been in the story for two weeks by now, Philip Bond is sent for a wig fitting and is paid extra, for this is a Saturday and outside of rehearsal time. So from this episode on, he's a bit blonder and wiggier 
than on previous episodes. 16th of December. Rehearsals start for the expedition at the Army Drill Hall at 239 Uxbridge Road. Christopher Barry requests that the three photographs taken during the making of the previous episode, on the 13th of December, be blown up to 12 by 9 with everything extraneous to the actual picture, i.e. studio lights act, to be graduated fuzzy to clear. That is to say, the edge of the frame to be fuzzy, gradually clearing, so that the centre of the picture is in sharp focus. In the finished episode, it's difficult to make out whether this actually happened or not. Meg Hornby requests the reservation of room TK Review 1 for Verity Lambert to observe the production from, as she did for episode 4, for the expedition on the 20th of January between 8.30pm and 9.45pm, and indeed at the same time for the recordings of the next two episodes as well. This way, Lambert can keep tabs on the production without being in the box with the director. History tells us that this is likely to be as a result of clashes with Richard Martin, whom she has promised not to interrupt during recording after an earlier disagreement mid-show, rather than any problem with Christopher Barry. 19th of December. Meg Hornby requests, on Barry's behalf, rosin and a tray to be supplied for use in this episode. Rosin, an extracted pine resin, is traditionally used by violinists to maintain friction between the bow and the strings and thus produce noise. It is also highly volatile at room temperature and flammable and produces smoke when mixed with water and so is used in this episode to provide the vapour coming off the patches of water in the swamp. 20th of December. The expedition is recorded at Studio D, Lime Grove. The camera rehearsal starts at 10.30am but Virginia Wetherill is called in half an hour early, for which she receives overtime of one pound and one shilling. A two-pound slab of cheddar cheese is ordered to play the food eaten by the adventuring party. Good news for the hungry actors, almost as good as a practical sandwich. In the script, a chocolate-like powder is added by Antidus to the water being poured that they have in the morning breakfast scene. The props department supply a tin of cocoa, but the powder adding doesn't happen on screen, although the liquid isn't clear, so maybe the cocoa isn't wasted and it is made up in advance, perhaps with added milk. There are a few moments that need to be done more than once. There are two false starts to the recording after sound troubles following the opening telecine. The first go only gets to shot one in the Dalek control room, and the second gets as far as shot four, when the Daleks are looking at the picture of Susan and Barbara treating Antidus. A second take is needed of the action of shots 48 to 50, the Dalek dying from taking the radiation drugs because of a sound breakup. During recording, a boom comes into shot twice at the back end of the episode. Firstly, when the camera moves off the exiting Ian and Ganatus and onto the waking Barbara, and secondly, when Elian beckons Ganatus away after Ian refuses to cross the lake. Again, the boom fails to keep up with the camera and so gets into shot. And so the attempt that makes it into the finished episode is the third take, during which Philip Bond makes a slight hash of his line about needing a raft. But that's allowed through. Better a fluff than seeing a boom. When recording is finished, that's not just the end of making this episode, but actually the end of work for the year, as most of the cast and crew get a week off for Christmas. So everyone goes home in the knowledge that there's no more graft until festivities are over. All of the cast qualify for £2 and 2 shillings overtime by the Thal extras who get an extra £3 and 3 shillings. The Dalek props are stored at Lime Grove, so if you're going to spend your Christmas with a Dalek, that's where you need to head. But not just yet, because 23rd of December, there's no rest for the wickedest creatures in the universe. A couple of them still have work to do. Two Daleks are requested to be delivered to Threshold House no later than 10.30am today, in order that at 1pm they may be picked up for a photo call. Kevin Manser and Robert Jewell are paid £4 and 4 shillings for attending the photo call with the Daleks out and about in Shepherd's Bush Market for their first ever 
public appearance. Uh, so remember, when this is being recorded, no one out there in the real world has yet seen or heard of a Dalek. Mansa and Jules' fees are charged against their work on this episode. They also have a little to drink as well. And after this, they, along with the rest of the cast who've already broken, are not back at work rehearsing the next episode until the penultimate day of 1963. Talking of which, 30th of December. The episode is edited today, ten days after recording, between 6.30pm and 9.30pm in VT Studio 3. It's too long, a whopping 24 minutes and 41 seconds, and so 10 seconds are removed. Two fades to black, one after the reprise and another intended to indicate the positioning of a commercial break for overseas broadcasters, are taken out, as is the end of the scene in which the Daleks, reacting to the death of their colleague, note that they will not be using the Thal's radiation drugs. Verity Lambert receives an inquiry concerning the billing and credits information currently being distributed about the expedition. Meg Hornby has contacted Val Speyer regarding a request from one of the crew. Val Speyer, Lambert's assistant, contacts Lambert about Hornby's request. She asks what sort of credit Daphne Dare should have for designing the costumes for the Thals. Perhaps Ray Cusick is already making noises about not getting enough credit for designing one of the series' icons, and costume designer Dare wants a piece of that action too. Verity Lambert cuts this off at the pass, though, and the note is returned with a curt... None. ...scrawled on it, and Dare has to make do with being credited solely for costuming on the final episode, as usual. I don't know, you cut some holes in some shiny black trousers, nobody appreciates it. With the expedition the last episode to be recorded in 1963, there's just time before the dawn of 1964 for one helpful note for the future of Doctor Who, in the form of a memo from Donald Baverstock. Currently, Doctor Who has a guaranteed life expectancy of a total of 26 episodes. Baverstock increases that by a further 10. The budget will remain at £2,300 for each of these instalments, and in his memo, Baverstock tells Donald Wilson that... I need from you now an outline of the future storylines with their locations in space and time. I hope that in these you will brighten up the logic and inventiveness of the scripts. In the episodes already recorded, we have seen Doctor Who and his daughter, though ageless and miraculously clever, reduced to helpless, unscientific ordinariness once they left their spaceship, whereas even the two lay characters should have appeared incredibly knowledgeable to such people as the cave dwellers and the country dwellers outside the blasted city. I suggest that you should make efforts in future episodes to reduce the amount of slow prosaic dialogue and to centre the dramatic movements much more on historical and scientific hokum. 16th of January. There's a little extra publicity for the expedition when Junior Points of View covers the fact that Doctor Who is now a major point of discussion amongst children who are sending points of view many pictures of the new alien menace wowing them via their television sets. 18th of January. The expedition is transmitted today. The Daily Mirror finds the space for an extra bit of advertising for the episode by printing a picture of guest actress Virginia Wetherill. She's a blue-eyed blonde named Virginia Wetherill, and if you're following the BBC's time and space serial Doctor Who, you'll know she is the girlfriend of the all-blonde and ultra-handsome tribe of Thals, survivors of a neutron war on Scaro. Twenty-year-old Virginia is the daughter of makeup artist Mary Wetherill, who has worked with stars including Liz Taylor, Anita Ekberg, Cary Grant and Stanley Baker. Both mother and daughter hope that Virginia has the makeup of a future star. And we don't mean the Scaro variety. The Glasgow Daily Record has another picture of Wetherill posing with a bicycle wheel. Girls who look like Virginia Wetherill are more often than not seen behind the wheel of fast sports cars than behind the wheel of a bicycle, but Virginia looks just as good either way. 
She's not an old-fashioned girl, though. She is appearing in the BBC science fiction serial Doctor Who, in which she plays a girl from another planet. She's out of this world, in fact. 13th of February. The episode is credited with £67, 3 shillings and fourpence for a film payment it had been charged for, which had already been paid by episode one. So it ends up quids in. The what? The storyline for this episode, contained in Terry Nation's 26-page outline, starts near the bottom of the 17th page. Ian reasons that the crew's problem is now the same as that of the Thals. They need to join forces in order to survive and go back into the city. The Thals agree on the condition that there is no killing. These people are not lacking in courage or compassion, notes Nation. They start to plan. The Doctor, or Doctor Who, as he is referred to here, thinks that the whole city is powered from the central control room. It is the brain of the city, controlling everything from the lifts to the air intakes. Ian's theory is that the most vulnerable area to attack is the one considered most invulnerable by its defenders. After considering the lifts and air intakes, Doctor Who asks how the water gets into the city. It comes from a lake behind the mountain that backs the city, but it is invulnerable. Ian says that is where they should attack, to the horror of the Thals. The lake is filled with horrible, mutated marine life, monsters. The Daleks will never expect an attack from that direction then, reasons Ian, and the Thals, though doubtful, agree that there is no other way. Doctor Who wants a large force to go, but Ian says no, smaller is more effective. Ian will lead the group, taking six Thals with him, whilst the rest of the TARDIS crew will remain near the city with the Thals. Ian sets a date by which he should succeed and the others should make their move on the city. That is when Doctor Who must mount a diversion. As Ian sets off, Barbara insists on joining his party. Her motives would be hard to define, says Nation. Ian's welfare, love of adventure, or the very good-looking Thal with them. As they head off, Doctor Who settles down to read old Thal books and records. The swamp is uncomfortable and misty. Barbara gets frightened beyond words. The marine creatures make terrible sounds. Leeches like octopus that seem to lurk in every pool. The episode ending, though not marked as such here, is described thus. A Thal who went down to the water's edge at dawn was remembered only by the scream he left behind. As the storyline moves into the events of episode 6, it returns once again to the present tense. This section of the storyline ends just near the top of page 20. The initial design breakdown for this episode expects there to be a shot of a moving antenna as a close-up segment of part of the city model, and it also requires a photo caption of the primeval swamp and lake. For the Dalek control room, they are expecting to need a new control panel. A complex of switches and dials surround a TV screen, a practical flashing lights. For the primeval swamp, it says, Mist, strange aquatic plants and vegetation. Cooking time. Cut away to small grassy pool. It also notes, for special effects, two huge malevolent eyes. The initial special effects breakdown for this episode lists the Dalek machine, the revolving antennae and dials, again, though there is not, in the end, a shot of the antenna, the lake shot, fire, water, etc., the monster's eyes, swirling mist, a matte shot, rock face and caves and swirling water. These requirements are somewhat simplified in the final production of the episode. There are ten music cues in this episode, totalling two minutes, 27 seconds in all. Tristram Carey is paid £42 for his work on the episode. The cliffhanger reprise is slightly different. It was still done last week, but re-performed in order to be free of the next episode caption and played in from film at the beginning of this recording. A fade to black that is originally between the reprise and the opening model shot of the Dalek City is later removed for timing purposes. One of the first things that requires attention when this serial is being redrafted 
is the beginning of this episode, which is deemed a little too conversational. It needs a little look at, especially the first impact speech, according to the notes. The photographs of the regulars and the thals that the Daleks look at on their screen are taken during the studio day of The Escape. The script specifies what should be in them, emphasising that the TARDIS telephone box must not be in any of the pictures, but also that the face of Antidus, when he is tended by Barbara and Susan, must not be seen, which then explains why the Daleks mistake him for Ian. The picture of the Doctor is requested to be from high above and as far away as possible, but this does not happen because, well, Terry Nation, have you ever been to Lime Grove? Ian's response to Barbara's assertion that the Daleks will learn how to escape from the city is not scripted. It is just stated that he mumbles, so the words are William Russell's own. The Doctor's line, I'm afraid my little trick has rebounded upon me, is a late addition. It's not even in the camera script. The business with him messing up Chesterton's name, however, an ad lib at first a few episodes ago, has gone down so well that it is all present and correct in the camera script and planned for this instalment, as is Ian's mock testy response. It has now become a thing. The Doctor was to state that, with me to lead the Thals, we'll conquer, rather than the transmitted, less belligerent, we'll succeed. His response to Ian questioning his stance on getting the Thals to help could generously be described as an ad-lib, but it's closer to be just about a rescued approximation of the scripted response. Notice that Hartnell says, my dear child and my dear young man, when addressing both Susan and Ian, and it's two lines in a row, and neither of these are in the script, nor is his quite so when Barbara taunts Ian about her, Susan's and the Doctor's deaths potentially being on Ian's conscience. The Doctor's we-need-action-not-arguments in this scene is also a very late addition to the script. After Aladdin hits Ian, there is a recording break for the cameras to reposition themselves. For the POV scene of the Dalek getting spaced out and ultimately killed by the radiation drugs, camera three has been fitted with a prism lens with circular masking to give the shape of the Dalek eye. The lens is defocused and focused to add to the disorientation suggested by the multiple spinning images created by the prism. In an earlier draft, it is not clear that the Dalek is dying because it has taken the anti-radiation drugs. This has been clarified come the camera scripts. The Dalek's plaintive cries, though, are not in the script, though it's help and help me are. So this strange and compelling moment is all thanks to Peter Hawkins and makes for an experience of both strangeness and pathos. Alien, effectively so. Top marks everyone. These Daleks this week find their ranks swelled by photo blow-ups, which look quite obvious. Their mountings are visible on modern screens, but maybe, just maybe, they got away with it at the time. And if not, well, at least thanks to this podcast, you know when those photographs were taken, so... That's something, eh? There are a few gaps in the exchange between Alidon and Dione when neither of them can sleep, which suggests excised dialogue, but we have no idea what that is now. They're just blank spaces on the script where once was typing. There's love in the air, though, because as well as the tenderness between these two suggested in the script, it also says of Ganatus and Barbara that he looks at her without disguising his admiration. After the Dalek says, we will change the environment to suit us, at about 13 minutes and 20 seconds into the episode, there is, in the original edit, a fade to black, of the kind used to indicate to a foreign broadcaster when to insert adverts. However, as this instalment is on the long side, this is lopped out to tighten things up, hence the pretty quick cut between this and the next scene. Although, in reality there is a camera break for, once again, repositioning the cameras during recording. Interestingly, just as the Dalek speech has become less colloquial, so has Aladon's. In his big speech, any scripted contractions, its, for example, have been removed by the time of performance to become more formal. It is. After the speech, Ian, according to the stage directions, 
claps Aladon on the shoulder, pleased not only with the decision, but with the way Aladon has made his personal position clear. In the end, Ian doesn't go for the clap, which frees up Aladon to bestow one upon map-wielding Ganatus instead. And when the handsome Thal talks of discussing things with the history teacher last night, the script has Ian note, The look between Ganatus and Barbara. Ooh, you could cut the sexual tension with a knife. The rotating antenna requested and suggested in many planning documents was probably meant to be the Dalek laser scope. Instead, what we get is just a close-up of a particularly vertical part of the building on the Dalek city model. In the scene in which the Daleks observe the poor-quality laserscope picture, the output of camera 1B is fed into the monitor on the Dalek control room set, but jostled and interfered with. Another camera break comes just before the scene in the swamp. This enables Barbara to go native, Jacqueline Hill donning Thal trousers, which she will keep for the duration of the story. They are, however, not quite the same as those sported by the guest actors. She doesn't have a hole at hip level as they do, and the other holes have white material underneath, so we don't see any of Jacqueline Hill's leg flesh. Clearly, Earth people must preserve their modesty more than the native Scorosians. Or perhaps Jacqueline Hill had enough clout to tell them she wasn't flashing any exposed legs on a Saturday tea time, not for the money the BBC are paying. And while she is wearing Thal male trousers, her cloak is striped like that of the Lady Thals. The swamp is described in the design breakdown prepared in advance of the serial as mist, very little light, vegetation, sound of running water, animal noises. A fire is required here. I suggest a portable fire is carried rather than the lighting of a fire, which is far too near the situation in Serial A. This is a reference to the business with the fire with the cavemen in the previous story. The series is obviously keen not to be seen to be repeating itself. In this set, there is also a place where one of the principals tries to wash in the lake. He looks up and sees two enormous eyes staring down at him of some monster from the lake itself. Interestingly, by the camera script, the monster's eyes are staring up. Ultimately, they're pretty much staring across but you can't say they didn't explore every angle. If you look carefully, you can just see part of the rubber ring that is inflated by a hidden air hose to give the monster its rising movement. It's still a great effect, though. Armand and Michaela Denis are paid two pounds and two shillings for the use of the snippet of film from their On Safari Wildlife series, which has been on since 1957, featuring a caterpillar or grub-type creature which is used to represent a Skyrosian beast of some kind in the jungle sequence that is killed by Ian after it terrifies Barbara. A lot of the budget for the episode goes on artists, who cost a total of £1,059, 14 shillings and threepence. Copyright, Terry Nation, £262 for his script. Transport, £1,365, 16 shillings and threepence. The studio costs £350. Special effects, as reported earlier, £10, which is to be paid to Shawcraft. Makeup and wardrobe come in at £75. Film at £81, 6 shillings and sevenpence. Recording costs are £100. And other expenses, which include the amortised cost of the TARDIS, which the production team are still having to include in their budget in order to pay off this big commitment, are £75. The ripple lighting effect costs £6 from a company called Strand Electric, and telesnaps and petty cash and any other minor expenses come in at a total of £5. The total budget for the episode is £2,068, 2 shillings and 10 pence, the equivalent in 2022 of £44,421. Talking of money, Carol Ann Ford is reimbursed £1, 16 shillings and threepence for taxes she has had to get to buy replacement shoes on the 13th of November and blouses on the 20th of November for this story, notably the remount of episode one and then subsequent episodes. These taxes, however, are charged against the expedition, so maybe she was late getting her receipts in. 
amongst the design requirements for this episode are 12 grotesque-shaped dead branches with twigs, approximately 6 feet high, to go to workshops, carpenters and painters. 8 grotesque-shaped dead branches, approximately 7 to 8 foot high, this type to have thick trunk to look like a small tree. 12 palms, approximately sizes varying from 3 feet to 5 feet, these can be dead or rough ones, to go to painters. Quantity of dead twigs, six sacks of mahogany sawdust, three bales of peat, a hundred yards of gauze scrim, as used before, quantity of dead creeper, liana, all available white rope, any condition, 36 palm fronds, eight branches, about five foot long with leaves, one metal container made for episode four, all books, tapes, etc. for above as used in episode four. Mahogany is definitely the colour of sawdust required, and that is not what was sent last week, and so the props buyer this week emphasises the need for the darker colour. The Thal map that we see is blue silk with clean edges, which is sent to graphics to have the map of the city painted on it in black, from a sketch by Ray Cusick. The Lake of Mutations is created by having a three-inch deep construction of black waterproof PVC with a two-way pump installed to circulate the water. The rubber swamp creature is inserted and it raises up when inflated and also has glowing eyes. The final recording break takes place between the party going to sleep and the scenes at night in order for lighting director John Triers to reset the lights to create a nighttime effect. The Who. Philip Bond. Philip Bond, playing Ganatus, was born on November the 1st, 1934, in Burton on Trent in Staffordshire to Matthew and Blodwin. He had enjoyed his first taste of acting whilst at Burton Boys Grammar School, and so enlisted at the Central School of Speech and Drama. He made his leading role on stage debut very early, in April 1956, playing Billy in The Good Sailor, an adaptation of Billy Budd at the lyric Hammersmith, holding his own opposite such heavyweights as Andre Morel, Bernard Breslau and Leo McKern, he got the warmest applause, noted the Daily Herald, adding that, here's a star in the making. Other early theatre roles included the shimmeringly masculine Jean to the Miss Julie of Sonia Dresdel, YMCA Theatre, Edinburgh, 1956. Excellent. The stage. Peter Tranchell in the musical Zuleika, Savile Theatre, 1957. And George in Suddenly Last Summer, Arts Theatre, 1958. Tall and handsome, with strong features and lustrous mane of hair, he was at home on screen and so was making films around this time too, small parts, often as Germans, which makes sense when you think of the Aryan look Christopher Barry was aiming for with the Thals. He was cast as Germans in 1957's Count Five and Die, Orders to Kill the following year, and Foxhole in Cairo in 1960. On TV, he did a few one-off plays. The television playhouse Ben Spray, 1961, Storyboards The Middlemen, 1961, and the Sunday night play The Judge and His Hangman, 1961, sandwiched between some series leading parts in the period piece The Herries Chronicle, 1960, one of the directors was Mervyn Pinfield, and as Fergus Ryder in the thriller Walk a Crooked Mile, 1961. But these are just a random selection. He had chalked up a lot of decent TV parts when, in 1963, he was appearing at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre and was asked to guest in The Daleks, stepping in relatively late in the day when Dinsdale Landon dropped out. My agent rang and said, do you want to be in this new thing called Doctor Who, he told me in 2013. He enjoyed his time on the series, including, he said, several lock-ins with William Hartnell in the Black Prince pub after recording. In fact, those cast members he remembered especially fondly were those he spent time in the pub with. It was very enjoyable, he said. Jackie, Verity, Russ and I had many drinks and meals together. He especially loved Jacqueline Hill and had known William Russell since 1955. We knew we were a hit after the Daleks first appeared, he remembered, which meant, 
as they were still making the show, they realised they were onto something during the recording of the actual story itself. Immediately after Doctor Who, Christopher Barry cast him again, in H.G. Wells' non-science fiction story Anne Veronica. And other 60s TV highlights for Philip Bond included playing the key role of Stapleton in Peter Cushing's The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1968, and supporting Janet Suzman and Sir John Gielgud in St Joan, 1968, plus a couple of regular parts that established his position as one of those faces to TV viewers, playing Tony Ashman in short-lived soap 199 Park Lane, 1965, and Peter Finden in The Main Chance opposite John Stride, 1969-1970. Over the decades, he transformed from likeable juvenile lead to distinguished character player with ease. He flourished when given the opportunity to enjoy a long-standing role, like that of wealthy fleet-owning businessman Albert Fraser in the first two series of the popular seafaring show The Aneedin Line from 1971, which would become the part he was best known for. He appeared in 24 episodes, playing a key part in the action due to Albert marrying Elizabeth, sister of the lead character James Aneedin, played by Peter Gilmore, until he left in 1974. 70s genre roles included Inspector Drew in Doomwatch's The Human Time Bomb, 1971, Javert in Jason King's Flamingos Only Fly on Fridays, set in the Caribbean, 1971, and he was reunited with Aladdin, John Lee, in the second of his two appearances in Warship, 1974 and 76. His film career never really took off, although he appeared in 1972's I Want What I Want, which did also feature Michael Coles, who played Ganatus in the big screen Doctor Who and the Daleks, so it's an interesting curio if you want to see those two time streams intersect. He also popped up in 1992's Fever Pitch as well, but was busy enough on the small screen in between. He played Ratcliffe in Children of the New Forest in 1977, and the magnetic Elliot Loveborg opposite Diana Riggs' Hedda Gabler, 1980, and was in the first feature-length Christmas Day Only Fools and Horses, 1985, to Hull and back as a Dutch diamond dealer, and was a Masonic friend of Charlie Hungerford in Bergerac's Poison, with Alfred Burke also guesting, 1987, and turns in Forever Green, 1992, and Lovejoy, 1993, kept him in the public eye at the back end of the 20th century. He kept busy on stage in between those television commitments, playing such parts as Rudbeck in Mr Johnson, Lyric 1960, Richard Brinsley in The Rivals, Sadler's Wells 1972, Otto Frank in The Diary of Anne Frank, Basingstoke 1995, and Alec Mant in After October, Chichester Festival Theatre 1997. He also took part in the heavily marketed Shakespeare, The Animated Tales in 1994, narrating Othello and playing Tyrrell in Richard III, was in a TV version of Nicholas Nickleby in 2001, and rounded off his career on screen with a couple of ratings favourites, Casualty and Midsummer Murders, both in 2007. He always had an eye on the Welsh side of his heritage. He played a cold and calculating Angelo in Measure for Measure in Cardiff in 1984, and he spent his final years living happily in a remote Welsh village. His 1959 marriage to actress Pat Sands, who later became a long-running producer of The Bill, ended in divorce, but produced three children. TV journalist Matthew and actresses Samantha, aka Mrs Wormwood in the Sarah Jane Adventures, and Abigail. In early 2017, he was planning to contribute to Phantom Films' Who Talk CD of memories of his Doctor Who episodes on his return from a holiday to Madeira, but he died there unexpectedly on January the 17th at the age of 82, surrounded by his family. His partner Elizabeth and his children survived him, as did five grandchildren who include the actors Molly Hansen and Tom Hansen ensuring that the powerful Bond acting genes will be flourishing for at least one more generation. Gerald Curtis Gerald Curtis, playing Elian, is one of the actors to have appeared in Doctor Who about whom we know the least. Oddly, there is another one playing a prominent part in the Daleks. Tune in 
to a future instalment for more disappointment. So, Gerald Curtis. Here's what we know. He was South African, and he came to the UK, apparently in 1959, to train as an actor. Between 59 and 1961, he attended the Webber Douglas Academy Drama School, and was twice noted for his skills in one particular area by a critic from the stage. He had a good comedy sense in the gay Lord Quex, and in his final year show was impressive and displayed a good ability for light comedy in Terence Rattigan's separate tables. Upon graduation, he won the Margaret Rutherford Cup, which was the second prize for men in his year. Winner of the first prize? Marcus Hammond, with whom he would share screen time and thaldom in the Daleks, in which Hammond would play Antidus to Curtis's Elian. Curtis's first theatre job out of drama school appears to have been in Chesterfield Repertory Theatre in 1961, in a company noted for having an international mix and which also included Canine and Company's Linda Polan. Prior to that, he had made his television debut, aired in September, with a starring role in the play Nightfall at Creekville, set in his native South Africa, which must have helped him to get this major role. It was about racial strife, and it also starred Kenneth J. Warren and David Markham, who very nearly played Temesis in The Daleks. It was to be Curtis's only TV role, apart from his brief visit to Scarrow. He then became part of the newly formed Welsh Theatre Company, which performed A Man for All Seasons in 1962. Another South African, Glyn Jones, who went on to write The Space Museum and then play Kranz in The Sontaran Experiment, was also a company member. In Robert Bolt's famous play, he was a suitably forceful and arrogant, the stage, Will Roper. The Guardian found him admirably played and fiery. The cast also included Philip Maddock and Last of the Summer Wines' Jane Freeman. Also in 1962, he worked for Laurence Olivier, playing a court gentleman in The Broken Heart at Chichester Festival Theatre, and then, prior to appearing in The Daleks, in 1963 he toured with the Bristol Old Vic in two plays he'd done before, Arms and the Man and A Man for All Seasons, as well as Dennis Carey's production of Hamlet. And then he took a trip to Scarrow. After that, in 1964, we find him in Kidderminster in Arms and the Man with the Cockpit Theatre Trust Company, co-starring with The Savages and Wheel in Space's Claire Jenkins, another of the small number of Doctor Who actors who have proved difficult to pin down. He stayed with that company for much of 1964, appearing in The Moon is Blue that October. When making The Daleks, Curtis was apparently living at 9A Richmond Mansions, but a search of that address doesn't have him on the census there in 1963, 64 or 65, so he was probably lodging. There are no immigration records of a Gerald Curtis coming to the UK from South Africa in the late 1950s, but the thing is, a lot of actors whose professional names are two potential Christian names, say Gerald and Curtis, may well have dropped their surname, possibly to anglicise the sound of their moniker. Austin Trevor, for example, was the acting name of Austin Trevor Shilsky, and there are many other similar examples. So our Gerald could have been, say, Gerald Curtis Smith, or more likely Gerald Curtis something very South African sounding, in which case, with no surname to go on, he will be almost impossible to track. And yes, I have checked BBC Residuals and Equity, who have nothing. So actually, he's due a few quid from sales of the Daleks. Oh, and yeah, I have tried Googling him. Thank you in advance for suggesting that, helpful people of the internet. And so, there the trail ends. Over ten years before I was born, Gerald Curtis disappears without trace. But I'm going to keep on looking, even if it turns out that this is one expedition that is never completed. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. So in week three, the Doctor was prepared to kill a caveman, and now in week nine... Ian turns some pacifists into the A-team. So much for the woolly liberalism this show is often championed for. 
I'm being glib, of course. Ian wrestles with his conscience, and in the Britain of 1963, not 20 years away from the bloodiest conflict the country had ever seen, fighting for what is right, battling your way to peace, well, that's what had to be done. Imagine Anthony Coburn's Cliff from the pilot script initiating this battle. He wouldn't have been quite so sensitive as, I think we can safely say based on the evidence of altered lines and existing papers, David Whittaker and William Russell's Ian. Ian uses his wits to manipulate the Thals, but they are not without agency. Aladdin getting the big hero speech, and Ganatus a few moments of dashing bravery or wistful introspection. And the show can only pull off a handful of key visual moments, but it chooses them well. The whirlpool effect, the episode's one specially shot piece of film, is a triumphant and shocking moment placed cannily very close to the episode's climax. And the shift of location to a new set of trickling water and bubbling swamp pitches our heroes into yet another malevolent environment and showcases again the great skill of designer Ray Cusick, but not with metal and odd interior shapes, but instead with disturbing and strange wildlife and exteriors. And who needs pre-filming when, with a rubber ring, a bit of air and a couple of lights, you can get a camouflaged octopoid to emerge from a swamp and menace our second lead. This barely-glimpsed horror is a triumph of judicious and economic TV magic. The Dalek death earlier in the episode and the Dalek POV shot when one opens the door show that the rulebook has yet to be written in terms of how these creatures are filmed. Dalek POVs are really gone by the 1970s, for example, so discovering these episodes having grown up a decade later makes such inventiveness seem fresh and thrilling, even though it actually predates one's actual viewing experience. And uh, at the end, we don't see what happens to Elian. It's all done by suggestion. But listen to that scream. If you listen carefully, you can hear it breaks off and ends with the sound of bubbling water. The sound effect giving you the suggestion that he's been pulled under and is burbling, struggling to breathe. It's a tiny little detail, but it's horrible. Oh, Doctor Who's future may not yet be certain, but boy, the team are going to fight to ensure its survival. Oh, and there's no dignity in being afraid to die, but there is a terrible shame in being afraid to live. Doctor Who, The Expedition, also featured Virginia Wetherill as Dione, Marcus Hammond as Antidus, Jonathan Crane as Christas, Gerald Curtis as Elian, David Graham and Peter Hawkins as the Dalek voices, and Robert Jewell, Kevin Manser, Peter Murphy and Gerald Taylor as the Daleks. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the incidental music by Tristram Carey, the story editor was David Whittaker, the designer Raymond Cusick, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, it's out of the whirlpool and into the caves as the expedition becomes the ordeal. That's next time on Doctor Who. Too Much Information. Too Much Information, The Expedition, was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. Additional voice work was by Chrissy Bone. Thanks to Richard Bignall, the late Philip Bond, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, John Kelly, Graham Kibble White, Ben Jolly, Stephen Griffiths, Alex Moore, and Simon Gerrier. The series consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music for this podcast has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information, that is for now exclusive to patrons.
There are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who, as well as the pilot episode, the first episode, and the first four versions of An Unearthly Child. There are accompanying show notes and pictures too of Alice Frick, of Donald Bull, of the Coal Hill School Kids. And that's all at my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Toby where you can also get exclusive material, early releases and other bonuses. Oh, and there are pictures of my dog as well. I know. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast. Next episode, The Ordeal. Or, though the wind blows, the mountain does not move. References. Well, look, I don't come up with this all on my own. It's gleaned from articles and paperwork and interviews. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane magazine is a peerless piece of research wizardry, and Mr Bignall has in his own time and without me asking procured various documents he knows will help with these episodes. Then there's Doctor Who, The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, as close to a one-stop shop with gorgeous wallpaper made of lots of photos you may not have seen before for all your Doctor Who fact needs. Much of the material therein is based on Andrew Pix's rigorously wrought archives features from back in the day, but they also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. David Howe, Mark Stammers and Stephen James Walker with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s and each Doctor in their handbooks deserve much praise for the shaping of our basic understanding of the developmental history of the entire show behind the scenes. And Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record of this period in the show's history in both words and more glorious pictures which come from the designer Ray Cusick. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources and also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so <clears throat> proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story, which are by Martin Wiggins. I walk in the shadows of giants, but they are giants who've turned their backs on marauding and instead spend their time yelling fee-fi-fo-fum, I found a bit of paper that says tribe of gum. Thanks so much to the patrons who make these podcasts possible. They include Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Burns, Peter Harness, Bob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Nick Tedston, David Anonymous, or in fact, I think there are two Davids who wish to be anonymous. Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Carrington, Paul Cook, Richard Chalk, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, John Deere, Chris Dunford-Kelk, Paul Dunn, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Darren Mackay, Adam Parker, Barry Platt, Ralph Chilton, Andrew Wilson, Ian Dean, David Trainier, Richie, Jeff Walker, Ronald Hayden, Tom Neenan, Steve Manfred, Nick Tedston, Graham Cooley, Frank Shales, Chris Hyam, Richard Bignall, Philip Craggs, Philip Marsh, David Green, Chris Murphy, Mark Clues, Thomas Gerrier, Kevin Ashelford, Kevin Parker, Martin Cook, Matt Corner, Jason Wilshire-Mills, Reese Williams, Stephen Bamford, Len Stewart and Paul Dunn. If you would like to join their number, as stated, please go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. Tiers start for as little as £3 a month. If you sign up for a year, you get a 10% discount on whatever tier you join. As I say, they start at three, they go up to, well, look, you can give me a million pounds if you want. Uh, if you cannot commit to the monthly way of doing things, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock whenever you like or whenever you're feeling flush or whenever I do something you particularly like or sound particularly hungry. I hate coming cap in hand, but it is the way that these things are done these days. But look, I know that not everybody has limitless resources and I am just very grateful to you for listening. However, what costs you nothing is to go to iTunes and to give these podcasts five stars. That 
really helps. And if you could add a few lines of review as well, that gives people something to read, gives them an idea of what they're getting and helps to separate me from the very overcrowded uh, world of the internet where Doctor Who podcasts hang about jostling for attention. So, you know, a few lines, uh, it'll give this a, a jaunty hat and perhaps some dance moves that'll make everybody notice it and want to take it home for some fun. I'm going to stop the metaphors now. Um, so, yeah, that costs you nothing and would be really, really helpful if you possibly can. I'm also a stand-up comedian. That's actually my day job. That's what I do properly. The Doctor Who fan thing, that's just what I do for fun. <laughs> so uh, if you like the sound of what I do, please come to Excess Monarchy Comedy Club in Manchester. It's been on the first Sunday of every month online since the pandemic. In fact, we were doing it weekly during the pandemic, but we're now online once a month at twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey. So there's no excuse not to come, even if you don't live in Manchester. It's me introducing four acts from the international comedy circuit. That's the online version. The live version, every Tuesday, 8pm in Manchester, is at excess malarkey at the Breadshed. 8pm, me introducing four acts from the national comedy circuit for as little money as possible. We've been doing it every Tuesday for 24 years and we've just won a couple of awards to add to our already brimming shelf so please do come to excess malarkey check out excessmalarkey.com online it's just an x and then an s and follow at excess malarkey you can also follow at haydoak podcasts for news on these podcasts or at toby haydoak which is me occasionally dropping artifacts or lame jokes uh so that's all of that please do it all right thanks for listening thanks very much Ta-ta. Oh, I do go on, don't I? Out now. All new episodes of Dick Dixon in the 21st century. Emerald, Professor Ship's just gone into warp. Do you know where he's warped to? Calculating sector vectors now. Yes, he was on a bearing for the constellation of Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia? Yes, Dick. Cassiopeia. The constellation of Cassiopeia? But that's uncharted space. Nobody has been there and chartered it. Nevertheless, that's where the professor is. The constellation of Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia. As I said, Cassiopeia. PG, what do you know about it? About what? The constellation of Cassiopeia. The constellation of Cassiopeia. Solar sister of nine planets, one potentially capable of supporting life. Then that must be where he's going. But why? There's only one way to find out. We'll have to go after him. You're right, Dick. The Professor must be going there for a reason. But what that reason is, I just don't know. And I'm not sure I want to know. But one thing I do know is that if we don't find out, we'll never know for sure one way or the other. <sighs> Lieutenant Fox, lay in a course for Cassiopeia. Yes, Admiral. Laying in a course for Cassiopeia. Dick Dixon and the Menagerie Artois is available for purchase now at www.averagerock.com.